Go to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're doing. Um, But I'm going to go a little bit different direction this morning. Using a little bit of Sermon on the Mount, we're going to come back to it. But I just couldn't shake it, so I'm going to go a little off topic of what I had planned to do uh, this morning. Um, But I think it'll be okay. And the reason I, I had to do this is because I kept getting questions from our body. I kept getting asked some questions this week. And so I thought, well, if God's people are thinking about this, then I need to talk about it a little bit. And I have to be honest with you, I don't think I'm an expert on this topic I'm about to talk to you about. I'm trying, I'm growing, I have a lot of skepticism about this topic, um, but also I'm very open to this topic. First off, I want to draw your attention to the text of Scripture, because we're going to come back to this. Um, We'll be back in chapter 5 more fully next week. But I do want to recall what we preached on last week. And I want to read it just so you have a full look at it again. And then we're going to, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about this morning. Would you, do, would you do this? Would you stand in reverence to the reading of, of God's Word? Not that you have to do this every time, but sometimes um, I'm, I'm, have, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm getting so concerned and so fearful um, that God's people really don't think God's Word is God's Word. I'm, I'm, I'm for real. I'm not like joking, just trying to give you a some platitude. I'm serious. I, I'm getting concerned that we are paying lip service to this being God's word, but when it really comes time, we don't believe it. We want the opinions of man. I've been asking God what, what could be a theme verse. I don't really do theme verses, but sometimes I wonder Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. I wonder if that might need to be our marching orders for a little bit. You may wonder, like, why would you say that? Man, just, there's so much lying that's happening every day around us. Just about every podcast we listen to, most books we read, most articles we read, most commentators, a lot of, a lot of the religious stuff that comes through the airwaves, most of the self-help books we read, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's just a bunch of lies. It's man's lies. God is the only one that's true. I'm getting concerned. Been concerned, I'm getting more concerned. I just want to stand for a minute in reverence to God's word. And I want to point you back to what we talked about last week. This is chapter 5, verse 3, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? May God be true and every man a liar. So let this be... um, a text we look to as we talk about this subject of revival. What does revival look like? Because it seems like there's some stirring and people are asking questions and you're doing some things. It would seem, but we don't know absolutely yet. The, the ink is still too dry. But if you are doing something, do not pass us by. So we ask for your help as we look back to this word from last week and Look forward, and God's people said, amen. So, 
What I want to talk about today, um, and we'll come back to this text, is revival. Um, now, I just am curious to how many that... I, I've had several of you ask me questions, send me questions this week. How many of y'all have heard so far about this Asbury revival and it's, spree- and it's spreading to other places? Okay, so quite a bit. If you don't know about it, then congratulations. You are probably disconnected from social media, and you're probably not watching a lot of news, and praise God you probably are hearing directly from the throne of grace each day than the rest of us maybe. Uh, man, you're, you're probably doing well in life. Um, but so here's what's happened. Um, and be honest with you, I, I try to stay off of social media. I don't, I don't do a lot of um, daily news stories. I'll, I'll listen to uh, Al Mohler's The Briefing, and I'll catch a couple other things. I just have to be careful um, how much I invest myself in that. Um, but... I would say this, if, if you don't know, um, and don't scroll through and look at it right now, you can do this later, right? You'd never do that. But there's something called the Asbury Revival that um, started on February the 8th, February the 8th. There's a uh, seminary and college, Asbury University, um, in Kentucky. It's about six hours from here. It um, it's actually has, it, it doesn't espouse itself particularly to a, it's not supported by denomination, a mainline denomination, but their roots and their system of theology comes from more of a Wesleyan, what we call Wesleyan Arminian kind of theology, which some of those things, honestly, we would take exception to, even, you know, even myself. So, so just know that there is some suspicion in even some of the theological grid. But what's happened is on, on February the 8th, um, this Asbury University, they have their usual chapel services, which are three times a week from 10 to 10.30. And I, I actually watched the chapel service that, that kind of started, started everything. And it actually, honestly, I don't think it was a chapel service. Um, what happened is, usual time, they're speaking. They have a speaker in chapel. Obviously, this gentleman had been there several times. He preaches a message that's not a very remarkable message. Honestly, is not talking a lot about the gospel message, but giving great biblical truths. And he says something to the effect of, after this message, I don't have anywhere to go till one o'clock, so if any of y'all want to stay and stay around, we can have some conversations. And chapel ended at 10.30. He said he could be there till one. So apparently some students decided to hang around um, and before they knew it, these students decided to uh, pray for each other. And then before they knew it, they were starting to confess some sins. And then they started doing some more singing. And by 2 o'clock, the president of the school, which I thought was pretty hilarious, he actually wasn't at that chapel that day, right? Go figure. How do you know when revival might be real? Maybe when the pastor's not there, right? And so the president of the school wasn't there. He actually was streaming. What a great confession. He was streaming that he, he, he said in one of the interviews that he was uh, watching chapel, streaming it from his office. And so what happened at 2 o'clock that day, um, he gets a message from his wife that says, hey, um, there's some things going on in the chapel, and I think you need to go over there, you know, and... He goes in there, and like students are worshiping the Lord, and this isn't led by the, the faculty or anything of that nature, just like it seems like there are sins being confessed, they're singing to the Lord, and no one's stopping, right? So then he sends out an email message to the campus and just says, hey, if anybody's around and you're just, you know, interested, hey, people are still meeting, no one's stopped, you know, the service from, you know, the chapel service from this morning at 10 o'clock still hasn't stopped, Right? And before you know it, um, that's on the 8th. On the 11th, um, I remember 
like, you know, coming here, I believe it was on the church was in 11th or 12th last week. They were still talking how it had continued to go nonstop. They never stopped the actual service. It just kept going. People come and go, but it just keeps going. Even in the wee hours of the night, of course, there's going to be less people in the wee hours of the night, but someone was there praying, singing, confessing, um, testifying, reading scripture. And so it just continued. Um, I, don't, I don't actually know the exact time, but um, I know at some point this week they started to shut it down at like one in the morning and then say, come back the next morning. And I know they're, they're doing some of that kind of stuff now um, because just so you know, I mean, it's a, you know, there's all these infrastructure things that happen on a, on a major college campus, right, with security and stuff. So, um, but they're still meeting. Even this morning, they're still meeting, and they're meeting all day, and they'll meet till late tonight. Um, and what's interesting about this revival is several other university colleges are said to be experiencing some of the th- same things right now. Um, and uh, what's interesting, when you start to look up and see what happens, you can't even get into it anymore, right? Now the wider evangelical culture has heard about it, and people are traveling to Asbury just so they can see, like, what is this like? And they just, it, it shows you that people are hungry uh, for God to do something. So, now the question is this, is it real or is it not? I can't tell you that. Um, I can tell you from a distance and from everything I read, and um, I'm actually Tuesday morning supposed to go, and if you want to go, I'm supposed to go to, um, I'm going to go to a gathering where, um, it's actually Steve Copeland, some of you might know him, he actually spent some time this week, so he's supposed to come in person and, and kind of talk about what he saw this week um, at Asbury University, and so I can tell you this, it's possible that it seems like God is doing something there, it, it, it seems that it started a lot with confession of sin, it seems to be more student-led. It seems to evolve a lot of prayer, and it seems to be expanding. And the administration of that college is kind of saying, we didn't start this, right? Now, just so you know, um, Asbury, this isn't the first time they've had a revival of some sorts there. Um, I actually listened to a documentary from 1970 from the president who was the president of Asbury 1970. Apparently, this has happened many times there. Um, the interesting thing is that this former president, back in 1970, when they experienced a similar kind of revival, that the students broke up and actually took that to other churches and spread out, tried to let people know that, like, the, the Lord wants you to confess your sin. He wants you to place your faith in Jesus and kind of spread it out. What's interesting is I went to the school's website yesterday and saw that as of this week, on Wednesday night, they're going to end the public services there on campus, and they're going to actually encourage. There's other like churches and places they want revival to go, and not just to be on their campus only. So some might see that. Well, you're ending it. They're kind of thinking. Well, it's supposed to expand. I will tell you, any kind of revival that happens, um, although it's it seems like God could use it and has used it with young people on college campuses. If it's of God, it's going to make its way into the local church and God's people are going to be revived and then it's going to cause God's people to go out on mission for Jesus. Now I want to tell you this. I'm a little skeptical when I first heard about it. I was a little skeptical, optimistic, but skeptical. And I have to say I'm probably still skeptical. Most people in my kind of theological vein are a little skeptical. We're skeptical that all the cuckoos might come out during this time and try to overtake it. Does anybody understand when I say all the cuckoos, right? I mean... We're all the people who are false prophets, false teachers. What's really been interesting as I've uh, read about it is the school administration. As soon as this happened, every 
all the prosperity, false teaching kind of gospel teachers want to come in and get a platform, and the school officials wouldn't let them, right? And, and it was kind of like, hey, you're, you're, you're welcome to come, but sit at the back. What's really even interesting is on, I believe it starts on Tuesday night, I know it's Wednesday night, and then they're having a students only Thursday night, that on the, the three evening services this week, from what I know, if you're over 25, they're not letting you in, <laughs> you know, which, man, doesn't that say something about us, right? That um, they kind of realize uh, that God's calling, calling a generation. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, from what I've told and what I've seen, there's preaching, there's testifying, there's confession of sin, there's singing. Um, people are going, uh, they have a they have a place they're calling an altar up front. They're a place where they're kneeling and confessing sin. So I, I say all these are really great things. Um, and, but I have to be honest, am I skeptical? Sure. Anything that might come from a more Arminian-ish, Methodist-type background, but uh, some great Methodists, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit skeptical of sometimes some of the man-centered theology that can come from those places. But I have to say at the same time, there's parts of me that would go, if people are confessing their sin and it's leading them to Jesus, the one who does something about sin, and people are actually and people are coming to faith and the word of God is being loved and Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures is being loved, I am all for this. So the question I've been getting I've been asked is uh, what how will we know if this reaches us, if this reaches in our homes and our churches? How will we know if this reaches us? Well, I will tell you this. Um, I'm no expert on revivals or anything of that nature. Um, I have to say I'm kind of skeptical a lot of times. When I first became a Christian and started going to church, we had revivals. I remember we'd have revivals. And what it usually looked like was an evangelist would come into town. You scheduled him. He'd come. He'd preach for three days to a week to two weeks. You'd go to church every evening, and it was kind of called revival. Um, and to be honest with you, it seemed like it was more man-centered. It was more we planned for it. I can tell you one of the things that I understand about revivals, it's nothing you can make and manufacture to happen. You can't make it happen. Like God has to do it. Now, whenever you study revivals, though, you do understand that there are some common elements that seem to be present. A lot of prayer. There's a lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. Prayer that is desperate, that is begging God. Prayer that has realized that things have gone far from the holiness of God. A lot of prayer. A lot of prayer for um, a, a revived relationship with the Lord. A lot of prayer that involves a hatred of sin and a love of the Savior. A lot of prayer. That seems to be common when you look at the history of revivals of God's people being revived. There's a lot of growth in new disciples. There's people who are not in Jesus coming to faith and repentance. Like I said, revivals aren't new. They've happened. Um, it was interesting when I was looking at this documentary on Asbury University's revivals in the 70s, uh, in 1970. They, the president, I thought this was really humble. The president of the college, who was the president at that time, he actually wasn't there at the school when it happened. He was out of town. And the dean of the, dean of the students called him and said, hey, I don't know what to do. Uh, we got a problem. And, and this is back in the 70s. And some of you may remember, there was a lot of anarchy that was happening on some university campuses, right? And so the, the president of Asbury at that point, he thought to himself, uh-oh, what's happened here, right? It's, it's made its way to Kentucky. What kind of anarchy? What's happening on the campus? And he said, no, uh, the chapel hasn't stopped, right? W what do we do? And so um, 
the actual president back then, 1970, when they had a great revival like this, um, it happened in a similar way. And um, he said that when he got into town, the president of the college, he said, I didn't go up on stage and make any address to the students. In fact, I just slipped in and sat at the back. He said, so fearful that maybe my heart was so full of sin, I might quench this, right? And so what a fear of God. And so I thought, now it was interesting that, watch this documentary, this former president back in the 70s of Asbury said, he said, what's interesting is he said, this revival didn't do as much for the Methodists in the end as it spread out. He said, it actually did something for the Baptists. And he actually talked about how there was a great spark revival at Southwestern Theological Seminary in and down in Fort Worth, Texas, and so it did a lot among the Baptists. Of course, I'm, of course, we're not a Baptist church here. We're non-denominational, but we probably look closer to that in any kind of mainline denomination, right? And I was like, okay, Lord, well, if it's going to hit from the Methodists, let it get to all of us non-denominationals and all of us people. I mean, like, let's let's make it out, Lord, do it. Let's it's come all the way to us. But. Uh, that watching that documentary in the 70s, he said that one of the things that was marked is there was a lot of prayer the month before. There was a lot of accountability. We had arranged all the students for one month. We challenged them for the month of January to um, get together in groups of six, to confess your sins to each other, to hold each other accountable, to study the scriptures every morning for 30 minutes. He said that's what we did for the month of January. And he said, and on February the 3rd, this revival broke out. All right. Now, the interesting thing is the same thing has happened on February the 8th. You know, we're dealing 23 years later. Now, once again, is this of God? I don't know. Um, I'm still skeptical. But I will tell you this. If it is of God, my prayer is, pass me not by. Like, don't let this pass us. Carville Bible Church needs revival. It really does. I'm not talking about emotional sentimentality. Not talking about that. Although emotions would involve revival, you're going to see that. That's not the indicator of true revival. I want to read you uh, something uh, from a professor of Southern Seminary, um, Denny Burke. I've read a lot of his stuff, and I think he's a um, think he's a think he has something to say. And so he wrote about this this week on February the 11th, where it's still in its pretty earlier days. It's not you know we're we're dealing on the 18th now. Here's what Denny Burke. He's a professor at Southern Seminary um, had this to say. Perhaps you've heard or read by now reports about a revival taking place on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. A a campus chapel service on Wednesday did not end at its appointed time, but rather carried on for days on end. Students lingered, prayed, repented, worshipped. Students from surrounding universities and parents began arriving to experience what appears to have been a powerful move of the Spirit. Traffic jams accumulated in Wilmore as countless others came to Asbury to see what was happening. I know that people of a more Calvinistic bent tend to be, which that would be us, tend to be more reflexive, reflexively skeptical about such reports. After all, haven't we moved beyond the shallow revivalism of the past and move on to more stable forms of faith? I understand the tension when he says that. I share it with him. I do hope that Christians... Have stable and established faith in Christ, he says, but I do feel cynical about these, but, but I don't feel cynical about these reports, he says. On the contrary, I feel prayerful, hopeful. In fact, I've gotten choked up more than once over the last couple of days at the thought that a genuine outpouring of the Spirit could be happening among our Methodist brothers. So I've 
mainly been praying two things. Oh God, let it be. Let your mercy pour down in genuine revival and let these reports be true and let it not end in Wilmore. And to that I say, God, please do it. Then number two, he says this. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. He says, maybe you won't be moved to pray this as well. It is of the nature of revival that we cannot know the true, this is what he says, the true extent of it until the days, months, and even years afterward. That's the hard part. And typically when revivals have happened in the past, they did, social media wasn't around to the extent it is now. So if someone says revival and, you know, within, within minutes it can be circulated. So it's hard to judge the authenticity, honestly, of this. You don't really know until some time later. That's how history, of course, I don't know with the advent of social media if we'll be able to tell quicker. Who knows? But he says this. It is the nature of revival that we cannot know the true extent of it until days, months, and even years afterward. To distinct, the distinguishing marks of revival may begin with an outpouring of the Spirit of grace, but that is only the commencement of the work it is to prove, if it is to prove real and authentic. My, co- my colleague, Tim Balfour, perhaps says it best. How do you tell if it really is a work of God? It's not how high you jump, which I thought this was great, guys. It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. Let's go back. How do we tell if this is really of God? Well, it's not how high you jump. It's not the emotions of the moment, how good you feel. Or, we felt God in the room. That's good. There's nothing wrong with this. It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. And to that we'd say amen. And if God is doing a work through a Methodist, Arminianish university, and God is doing something now, pass us not by. Let's not, God, do not pass our homes by. Do not pass Carville Bible Church by. Do not pass Carville by. Do not pass Shelby County and Memphis and Tennessee. All right, do not pass this by. I will tell you this, our our whole society is ripe for revival. Don't you agree? It is ripe. There is so much sin. And it's so confusing now. It's ripe. He says this. After hearing reports of such movements in his own times, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards wrote an essay on the distinguishing marks of a true work of the Spirit. His text is 1 John 4, 1, which says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So we're not wrong to be a little skeptical. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just a side note before I keep reading what Edwards has to say. I was really encouraged that the faculty of this, of, of this school was willing to not let the charlatan false prophet evangelists who want to come in and abscond this. Only the students were the ones, students from the school were the ones that kept going on stage and testifying and reading scripture. Based on this verse, Edward offers nine signs that are no sure sign of revival, followed by five signs that are true evidence of the Spirit's work. And I think this is um, really good for us. So Jonathan Edwards said, 
Back in the day, he says this. Signs by which not to judge the work of the Spirit, which means the Spirit's not working. This is a false revival. One, um, you can't judge it. One, the work is unusual and extraordinary. Just because the work is unusual and extraordinary and people are staying there for multiple days without ending a service doesn't necessarily mean that a work of the Spirit is happening. doesn't mean it's not, but it isn't the only indicator, right? People could just be drinking a lot of Starbucks. Number two, that wasn't him. That was me. It produces bodily and emotional effects. Although that may be there when revival happens, that alone is not how we judge it. It occasions a great deal of noise about religion. That is not, does it not mean that, that a work of the Spirit has, is necessarily happening? And before, great impressions are made on the imagination. That doesn't mean that necessarily the Spirit's done something. Number five, one means used is setting an example or following another's. Number six, it is accompanied by great irregularities in conduct. Doesn't necessarily mean that this is the work of the Spirit. It is intermixed with errors in judgment or delusions. Number eight, some, um, some who worked upon it at first later fall away. And just because the ministers insist on the terrors of God's holy law, which is true, doesn't mean revival has necessarily happened. He says, but this is what you can judge it by. He says, evidence that the work of the Spirit is working in revival. And Edward says this, it raises the esteem of Jesus Christ and their eyes. It raises Jesus. He becomes preeminent, the prize, the treasure. Number, number two, it operates against Satan's interest by discouraging sin. You'll see people start to call sin, sin. Not explain it away, blame shift it away. It causes men to have a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures. A greater regard for the Holy Scriptures. Number four, it is the spirit of truth which convicts them of gospel truth. Number five, it is the spirit of love towards God and men. Men will love God and love men more. So Jonathan Edwards says if, if there is revival happening, an esteem of Jesus, a... Um, a, a a dislike for Satan and his interests, a discouraging of sin, a greater regard for Scripture, a greater regard for gospel truth, a greater spirit of love for God and others. Edwards follows with a warning to those passing judgment on the sidelines. He writes, Let us all be hence warned, by no means to oppose or do anything in the least to clog or hinder that work that has lately been carried out in the land. But on the contrary, to do our utmost to promote it, now that Christ has come down from heaven into this land, it is in a remarkable and wonderful work of his spirit. It becomes all his professed disciples to acknowledge him and give him honor. Lord, may it be. I think that's a good word from Jonathan Edwards, and, which is this. It's, we, we can't say that, Lord, you are doing something, but we can't say you're not. And our prayer would be, Lord, do it and do not pass me by. Now, here's the question I'm asking myself as your pastor. Um, what am I responsible to do with my church? What am I responsible to say on this? Well, a couple things is I can't make revival happen at our church. Lord knows I've tried that more times than I've tried. I can't make that happen. Only God can make that happen. But I can't tell you from what I understand accompanies revival, and I can't just try to clear the way and clear away the rubble so that 
if the Spirit decides to bring that and is doing that, that it happens even here among us. So when God brings revival, it's clear that only God brings it. Number two, it's clear that there will be this unceasing prayer. People will be praying. They will be praying with each other, for each other. There will be, there will be heavy seasons of prayer. It won't be just a Nick thing. People will be gathering on their own. People will be gathering and maybe inviting us, right? I know in my time here, we've had two focused prayer seasons, and really, honestly, only a small part of our church actually came to this. Uh, we had it Right, it was a little bit right before COVID when we were actually considering, should we sell this building and it just the cost of it? We, and we prayed through that and God never told us that. And then, and then actually when we um, came back from COVID and just wanting to pray together, we gathered here on Sunday nights. But to be honest with you, as much as we talked about it and promoted it, only handfuls actually came. So the Lord knows I've tried to church-wide prayer in some kind of way but in spite of myself, the Lord hasn't done it, but only Jesus can do it. So I know this, there will be a lot of prayer. There'll be a lot of prayer. We'll see it when we're invited to pray, when we have an opportunity to pray, when people say, pray for this request, we'll be quick to just pray for it right then. There'll be prayer in our home. There'll be prayer over dinner, before bed. It, it, even our prayers will change in the sense of this. Have you ever prayed? We've never done this. Have you ever prayed over a meal? But the way you prayed it, you were almost embarrassed that you went before the throne of grace in such a cavalier way. Even prayer will change. It won't just be, oh, thank you for this meal. Let me get through this. There will be an acknowledging of the character of God. It'll change. Also, what we're going to see is repentance. Prayer and repentance. You'll see these things. I want to focus a lot on repentance this morning because I think, I think we're all juvenile in it. I really think we are. Repentance. When there is real revival, we'll see that only God can do it. There'll be an unceasing prayer, and there's going to be godly repentance. Look at the Beatitudes. I want to point back to this from last week. What is Beatitudes? talks about a blessed life. But this kind of life actually is the life of revival. This is a revived life. This is what the Spirit does. This is a repentant life. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those who mourn or lowly, hunger and thirst are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. These are all indications of what actually happens to God's people when revival breaks out. But first you're going to see this is all part of the repentant life. First, let's just talk about repentance. I think a lot of people don't understand what repentance is. So let me just define it really great for you. By the way, I wish I could tell you this morning to go buy a book by J.C. Ryle in our uh, bookstore, but we put two or three of those out earlier this month, and they're gone. So it means we brought, it means God's people must be interested in repentance. So we'll we'll get some more ordered and get them out there. Here's what repentance is: it's a change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin and to God. A change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin and to God. If I could just give you the best overall definition of biblical repentance, that's what it is. Now, the church at Thessalonica, 
was noted to be those who showed genuine repentance. And in and th- First Thessalonians 1.9, I like what it says. It says, Paul says about the, the word on the street about the Thessalonians is that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you land, right? They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin into God. And it's kind of like this when revival happens. There is repentance. Now, here's what we do with sin many times, honestly. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all remember that story, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember what Lot's wife did? She turned around. So there is this sense of a false repentance. And this happens with a lot of us. Let's pretend that over here is sin, right? Over here is the Lord. And a lot of times you'll see people do this. This is Lot's wife. She turned from sin to God, which basically means this. Y'all get that, right? You may be walking away from it, but you still hunger and desire for it. There's no revival. It's not going to happen when that happens. Let's just be honest. That's us. Let's just be honest. That's us. That's not only our church. It's most of modern evangel- the evangelical world. It's us. And, and here's the thing. You might go like, Nick, you're so offensive. How dare you say that? Okay. How many times have we blamed our sin on somebody else? There you go. That's us. How many times have we, have we thought, well, God, I know you call this sin, but Jesus is my Savior, so you'll just cover it. It's all under the blood. That's the, okay, I'm walking towards God. Okay, man, I'm giving. I'm going to church. I'm praying over a meal. That's turning from sin to God, but really, you can take yourself out of Sodom, but Sodom hasn't come out of your heart yet, right? Now, here's what it means to turn to God from sin. It's different. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9, what that church did is it didn't turn from sin to God. It turned to God from sin. You'll catch a difference? Y'all catch a difference? Amen or oh me? I'm saying oh me. I mean, come on. It's, man, I'm going, to, I'm going to God now. God has changed my heart. I see sin differently. I see it as God sees it. I see him as holy. And, and listen, here's what we do with most of our sin. We compare our sin to others' sin and think, oh, I'm not that bad of a guy. When we're really turning towards God, we see our sin as it is because we see his perfect holiness and realize we fall short. But people who are looking back towards sin, what they really see is every other man's sin and think like, well, I'm not as bad as them. And let's be honest, those of you that are married, those of you that are married, you know what this is like. How many times in your soul have you said, if my spouse would just do this, we could have a great marriage? Yeah, that's, that's looking back too much. That's blame shifting. That's what we do. It's it's minimizing our own sin. Aren't we called to judge our own sin first? I mean, have you gone over your own sin? 
May God be true and every man a liar. Here's one of the hardest things I think about right now. Is so much of the, of the stuff that's coming through the airwaves and our books and social media, supposedly from those who are good, strong, solid Christian leaders and pastors, most of the stuff, most of the stuff they talk about is just blame-shifting sin all over the place. Revival happens when there's true godly repentance. That's when revival comes. So, who should repent? Who should repent? First, I would say this. Unbelievers should repent. The Bible says that if you're, if you're not in Christ, you're the first person. I mean, you're, you're up first. I mean, actually, God's people repent. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, I just want to talk about the unbelievers, about repenting. Unbelievers. You know, the first doctrine Jesus comes when he comes on the scene in Matthew 4. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark's gospel says, repent and believe the gospel, right? Mark 6, 12, when Jesus sends out the 12, they go to preach that men should repent. When Jesus is resurrected and he unveils to those disciples about who he is from all the scriptures in Luke chapter 24, it says that, that his message to them is that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name among all nations. When Peter delivered his sermon in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people got saved, Peter says what? Repent. That's what he says. So the first thing an unbeliever should do is repent of sin. What does that look like? Start to see that sin for what it is. Start to see that sin as you are in cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven, you have broken his law. You have broken his standard. You have fallen short and deserve nothing but the judgment and wrath of God. I'll show this to you. Go to Exodus chapter 20, just so you see it. Exodus chapter 20. These are the Ten Commandments. These commandments help you know how holy God is, his standard for man, that man falls so short of these, will convict you of sin, and even today will still keep convicting us. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, how holy and righteous are God's commandments. If you were to read further in chapter 20, that the children of Israel basically told Moses, don't let that guy talk to us anymore. Why don't you go ahead and take care of this, right? We don't want to hear this guy. He's holy, he's righteous. This is what God says to them. Chapter 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That means nothing else has your heart but him. We need, you need Jesus. You, gotta, you, you need, part of repentance of sin is you transfer from worshiping other gods to him being the one true God. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself any idol, any likeness of, of, of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, he says. So the next one is like building an idol. This is why we need, if you're not in Christ, if you're online and you're not in Christ, this is, this is part of the conviction of sin, is that we have, you have made idols. You have made idols of your own life. You have made idols out of your own excess. Those are the things that you, that you love. 
And there's a transfer that happens when a person repents of sin. They go from serving idols to serving the one true God. That's part of when you become a follower of Jesus, you repent and believe. You repent of your sin. You realize that you followed a false God, the gods of your own choosing. You keep going to verse 3. You shall not take the Lord your name, the name, the you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave you unpunished who takes his name in vain. This, this commandment, if, if a person names the name of Jesus, names the name of Jesus as theirs, there's an expectation that you will represent that name. And it's not just the phonics of what you say about God, but it's also saying if you belong to him. So verse 3, there's a transfer that happens is that now part of this repentance, part of what God's doing in your life this repentance and belief for the unbeliever is that now there's a, such a lifestyle change that happens in your life as a result of this is that when you name his name, you're actually living according to his name. This is why you need him because the unbeliever has been living a life in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. There's been no worship. By the way, just a side note, I don't even know if I have time. I don't even have time to talk about this. I wish I did. Maybe I will. I just don't want to talk to the unbeliever. I just want to talk to us believers for a minute. Because, by the way, the next part of this message is believers. And I don't even think I'm going to get to that part. So, haha, I guess what we're doing next week. I don't expect an unbeliever to get this commandment. I expect believers to get it. But if you're an unbeliever, no wonder... The very fact that an unbeliever will have nothing to do with gathering with God's people and giving a day to the Lord would be a sure sign that you're far from God and need to repent and believe. The very fact that you want to do it. Now, here's my side note, and we'll talk even more about this next week. Even God's people obey this, not for righteousness, but because we've been made righteous in Christ. Although I'm not promoting some Sabbath observance on Saturday according to the Mosaic Law, but Sabbath day, rest, and worship is a creation principle. Now we've pushed this off and kind of said, and kind of, I'm mean, just, just be honest. We have through the years gotten less reverent with a day of the Lord that his people gather and worship and rest and reflect. We have gotten further and further away from that. And let me, let me ask you, what do you think the fruits of that look like now? Come on, man. We know it. The very fact that we got up this morning and probably half of us thought to ourselves, do I want to go this morning, means that this isn't a commandment anymore. It means that it means nothing anymore. The very fact that a, a snivel could keep us away. Now, I'm not saying you have to come to church when you're sick, but I'm saying we'll use this, the flimsiest of excuses that we'd never use during a work week. We'd never use if a new movie came out to the theaters that weekend. Right, we'll use the silliest of things, but go do everything else underneath the sun. God's people need revival. We've got to repent. We're even lackadaisical when it comes to meeting with the body. We won't even set a day aside. We'll let the culture actually regulate our calendars. We need revival. It says here in verse... Uh, verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land. Honor your father and mother. That's why we need Christ. There's a dishonoring of mother and father. If there's ever been a time where mother and father are no longer obeyed and honored, now's the time 
Verse 13, you shall not murder. You might, be, you might be thinking, I've never murdered anybody. Have you hated anybody? Well, then you're an offender of God. You're a sinner. You need him. You're now condemnable. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The unbeliever might say, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. You haven't? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever committed sex outside of marriage? Have you ever lusted in any type of way? Then you are condemned, and you need a Savior. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever lied? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever desired for something that wasn't yours? These are standards. Like This is why people need Jesus, because we've all committed against this. God's command for unbelievers is that you repent and believe. And why should you repent and believe? Because every person is a violator of this. Now do this. Go over to Acts chapter 18. And we'll have to get more into us next week. This is just for the unbeliever. If you're you're listening and you're not in Christ, if you're here and you're not in Christ, revival... When revival comes, there's repentance, and those who are not in Christ need repentance. Now, I want you to notice something in this text. Acts chapter 18, verse 30. Acts chapter 18. Did I say chapter 18? That's not what I was thinking. I'm looking at that, and I'm like, that is not. Yep, there we go. Thank you. Chapter 17. This is Paul in Athens. And he, he basically sees an altar to an unknown God. He uses it and speaks of who this unknown God is. is Jesus. Now look in verse 30. After he preaches who this unknown God is, it's the one true God, it's Jesus. He says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everywhere, everyone should repent. So for the unbeliever, what is God's call for you right now? Repent. That is God's will. What does he want you to do? Repent. He wants you to see your sin as it is, as holy, as offensive and unholy to God, that you bear the wrath of God right now. And the only thing you can do right now is call out and cry to him and ask him as your Lord and Savior. Admit your sin. Command, he commands men everywhere to repent. That's what he wants. Now the question is, how come everybody isn't? Well, look in verse 31. Paul says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished reproof to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying he raised him from the dead. He's alive. Verse 32. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, and others said, We will hear you again concerning this. In this way, Paul went out of their midst, But some joined him and believe. Here's what you see. If you're online, if you're here, and Jesus is not your king, he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. You have never repented of your sin, and you can't repent of your sin unless God reveals that you are a sinner. And you can't repent of your sin unless he is calling you. But how will you know that he's calling you? Because you'll believe. 
Repentance is what God is what the unbeliever needs. And when is an unbeliever repenting? He will start to believe. He will see his sin as God sees it. He will see it as unholy. He will see himself condemned. He will see that he can do nothing but believe. He will believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And in this text, don't you notice? They all heard that same call. Repent. This is what God commands you to do. Repent. And what did some do? Some laughed. Some said, maybe later. And some believed. So for the unbelievers that are hearing, or if we're here, there's three response and options you probably have at this moment. God is commanding you to repent, and you'll either laugh this off, put this off, or believe. That's, what, that's, that's the simple conclusion of what happens. When revival happens, people are repenting. Unbelievers are repenting. They're coming. But not only that, with my two minutes I have left, now we get to talk about God's people. Ha! Only two minutes. Well, the Holy Spirit can work fast, can't he? I'm going to give you this, and we're going to go a little bit further in this next week. But then repentance has to happen in believers' lives. In our lives as believers, we already believe, right? But now we've got to repent. J.C. Ryle, in his book on repentance, which it looks like several of you have bought, he gives this outline. I think it's a great outline. He says this. True repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments still apply. Are we still breaking his commands? He says, true repentance produces sorrow for sin. I'm just going to tell you honestly, as a pastor of the years I've been a pastor, in my own life and heart, most of the time, this is what I see people and my own self doing with sin. I'm not sorrowing over sin. I'm not doing what Matthew 5 Beatitude says, mourning over sin. You know what we do most of the time with our sin? We minimize it. We minimize it. We sanitize it. And we blame shift with it. That's what we do. And there'll be no revival until we repent. It's always someone else's problem. It's always someone else's fault. That's the junk. This is why I say, may God be true and every man a liar. Every man that tells you your sin is a result of what someone else is doing to you is lying to you. True repentance produces a sorrow for sin. We see the sin for what it is. We see it in comparison to a holy God. We see how we've fallen short of his standards. We minimize sin. We think because Jesus has forgiven us, it's all under the blood. What trampling, what trampling over the blood of Christ we're doing. True repentance produces a confession of sin and admitting and an asking forgiveness. There, when there is true repentance of sin in our own church, when we have our times of, share, of, of edify, it won't be uncommon that people would say, here's how I'm sinning against God. Church, would you pray for me? We would not see it uncommon that people would go up to people and say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? It would not be uncommon that people would not would not be embarrassed, but more overcome with who the Lord is that we could actually name our sin. Most of the time we won't do that for fear of what other people are going to think. When God is doing revival and true repentance, we can do nothing but confess our sin. True repentance leads to a breaking off from sin. We know we, know we are no longer looking back at it like Lot's wife, but we're looking towards God and do nothing else. True repentance shows itself by producing in the heart an established habit of deep hatred of all sin. Does it make us sick 
Does it make us love the Savior more? When revival is happening, God's people are repenting. Here's the reason I'm talking about this today. Because I don't want the Lord to pass me by on this, to be honest with you. If he's really doing a revival, God, do it here. Do it in my life. Do it in my family. Do, I mean, may we be a people that are sick of the sin in our life and the minimizing of it and the excusing of it and the sanitizing of it. I'm asking God, don't pass us by. Let us repent. The more we hate sin, the more we'll love the Savior. The more we see the holiness of God, the more we'll be happy and delightful in Him. Go back to Matthew 5. I promise I'm about to land this plane. The poor in spirit see their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who mourn see the bigness of their sin. Those who are lowly or humble, they're humbled by the bigness of their sin and how they could love God and love others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When, when revival is happening, there's a hungering for God. Verse 7, they are merciful. They are pure of heart. They're willing to confess their sin and reconcile. This whole thing of we keep saying to ourselves, well, I love them, but I don't like them. That's really a result of flimsy repentance. There's this thing where people say this thing of, well, God loves this. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. When I read the scriptures, I don't think those two separate out from each other. Like sinners still end up in hell. God wants sin out of the sinner. He has done something to take care of it. I'll end with this story that I got from J.C. Ryle. I thought it was great. It was about a mother who had a, um, a wayward daughter, a wayward child. Anybody ever been there before? So the story goes like this. This mother had a wayward child, a daughter, and she began to pray for this daughter and pray for this daughter and pray for this daughter. And this one thing the mom did, she, as soon as the daughter left the home, she started unlocking the door at night. And what the mother said, the reason she did that is because she wanted the daughter to know that if you ever returned home, You'll never have to knock on the door. Just open it and come back. So the mom kept praying for the daughter, praying for the daughter, praying for the daughter. It was a long time. The woman kept praying for the daughter. And then one day, while she was asleep, the daughter came home. And when the daughter reached for the door, one of the delights to the soul of the daughter was just as it was promised, the door was unlocked. Here's the deal. God has an unlocked door right now for repentance and faith. And maybe God's unlocked the door that revival will happen in our own hearts and lives. A revival that will hate sin and love the Savior. And I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if we've prayed enough yet. I don't know if we've looked at the holiness of God, God yet. But I pray God do something. Lord, don't pass us by on this one. Hey, worship team, will you make your way up here and we have a great song we're going to sing. I think it's a great expression of worship. I look forward to our edify time. Honestly, I need to hear from you. Um, I need to hear what God is doing. I don't know if what God is doing is stirring his people, but if he is, I want to be a part of it. I know, I know repentance is a huge part of it. I know prayer will be a huge part of it, and only God can do it. Hey, would you stand to your feet? And I want to pray. Um, I want to pray for those who may not be in Christ.
God calls you to repent, believe, and we'll warm that baptistry up quick. We'll get you baptized. Would you pray with me? We've got sons and daughters and friends and uncles and grandparents and parents who have not repented and believed the gospel. If they are listening online, if they're here today, God, would you do what only you can do? Would you let them be among that third group in Acts 17 and some believed? And then for us in Christ, we never repent of repenting. So help us. Let us see sin for the heinousness and the rebellion. Let our bellies and souls grow sick of it. And may it drive us to love you more. May it drive us to the cross. May it help us to take communion in a way that the wine tastes sweeter and the bread more fulfilling. When we think of the glory the, of the glory of Christ, that he would take the wrath in our place. That we can be holy because you've made us holy by your finished work. Revive us. We really do need it. Sometimes we are way too dead to what you're doing. Help us. And God's people said, amen. Let's sing together. I know we've preached long. I, know no, I don't know what else to do. Let's pray that God would bring revival among us, starting with faith and repentance.